if you listen to the words of it and think about the words of it, he draws attention to three attributes of God. Wisdom, power, and love. So those are the three things that we're going to explore in our lesson this morning. And what I want you to do is I'm going to be putting the passages on the screen, but there's some value in our marking our Bibles because there's some places I think you're going to want to return to, to study, to contemplate, to think about as we go through this. Let's talk about the wisdom of God. You know, God led Moses and the children of Israel through the Red Sea. When they came out on the other side, the waters closed back up and drowned the Egyptian army along with Pharaoh. And I'm sorry if you watched the movie, they got it wrong. And right after that, Moses gave a song, if you will, in Exodus chapter 15. It's a song of praise for what God had done for them. And here's what he says in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? If you look at those who have been elevated as gods, spell with a little g, whether you're looking at the Egyptian gods or you're looking at all the other nations' gods, there's no one like God. I want you to explore with me for just a few moments some of the passages that talk about God's wisdom and knowledge. Here's the way Paul expressed it in Romans chapter 11. All the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. When Paul looks at the whole scheme of what God has done, he says, look at him. And I want you to look primarily at verse 36 with me here. For of him, through him, and to him, it's almost like there's a crescendo building. The the volume is increasing. Are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. In Job chapter 9, Job is looking at God as the Almighty. He's looking at himself and he's trying to say, could I ever be on a plane with God? And he said, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Is there any man that has ever had the knowledge, the ability, the understanding to say, I can stand against God? Let me tell you, the closest that anyone ever came was Satan. And you know what happened to him. You see, when you start looking at man and how puny we are, see, here's our problem. We think ourselves very smart. Oh, you have to look at our society today. 
we understand so much about the DNA of man. Oh, you can start noting there's genetic diseases. There are some people more predisposed to certain things than others. Or think about particle physics, those super colliders they've got over there in Europe that we're going to build here in the United States so they could be able to crash these molecules together and see what happens from them. Folks, let me tell you something. As brilliant as the smartest man is on the face of the earth, he's nothing compared to God. Because not only does God know it, God designed it. God created it. So when Job said, who has hardened himself against God and prospered? The answer is no one. In Psalm 147 and verse 5, David said, Great is our Lord, mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. God knows everything of His creation, all the way down to the number of hairs on every person's head. Do you realize how great understandings God has? Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. We as puny human beings are incapable of understanding the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge. But for just a moment, let me think with you about focus. You see, as we think about the great majesty of God's wisdom, God's wisdom is greatest as it is focused on our salvation. You know, we might be able to figure out a number of things. There might be one day a cure for cancer. I don't know. One of these days they may come up with some treatment that will prevent Ebola from ever happening. There may be some way of preventing heart disease from being the the great killer that it is. But folks, none of that compares with God's wisdom expressed in saving us from our sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul would write, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom from God ordained from the ages for our glory. Paul is saying, we're, we're telling you about the wisdom of God from the very beginning of time. In chapter 1 and verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, It was God's good pleasure, or it pleased God, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It was God's divine scheme to save us by the preaching of His good news, His message of the gospel. When you get to the book of Ephesians, Paul is trying to give us insight into God's divine mystery, His plan, and the way it worked out. He said, beginning with verse 10, to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church 
to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wisdom of God is known by the very existence of the church. God planned us, if you will. His body, the church, and in that his wisdom is known and we make it known. Thus God is due great honor for his wisdom. Paul wrote Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 17, Now to the king, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jude verse 25, To God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, power, both now and forever. Amen. As you step back and you look at the wisdom of God, God's divine wisdom as it is expressed in understanding everything, but more specifically as it is focused upon the salvation of man. Number two is power. There's no limits to the power of the Almighty. When you call God the Almighty, which the Scripture does, it draws attention to the fact that God has all power. In fact, if you start looking at some of the passages, you start finding that God's power has no limits whatsoever. God had sent the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Judah. They had been worshiping the Baals. They had been idolaters for quite some time. In fact, they had been trying to do a little bit of both. And God was raising up the Chaldeans and he was trying to get them to understand this is what's coming at you. And I know that many of the people were, God's not going to do that. God can't do that. And so Jeremiah says for the Lord, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Can God raise up one nation and put down another? At his will. Speak the word and it happens. In Matthew 19 and verse 26. Jesus had said it was very hard for a man who was rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He said, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And when Jesus presented that, people are thinking, well, who can be saved then? Because every man struggles to some degree with material possessions. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus looked to them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. You see, man cannot thwart the plan of the Almighty. There's not a king. There's not a prince. There's not a president. There's not a prime minister. There's no leader of any country. Nor all of them combined that can stop God. You listen to Job chapter 12. Verses 14 through 21. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. 
If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the water, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. When God speaks, it happens. None of us are going to stop it. Psalms 2, 1 through 6, David would write, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on his holy hills Zion. You think about the nations who argue against God. Think about our leaders in our country who have tried to say, you can't pray to God. You can't read his word. You can't do things that are overtly religious. God is laughing at them in heaven. Do you really think that you're powerful enough to stop the Almighty and to stop His Word? Isaiah 55 and verse 11, God said, My Word will not return unto me void. It will accomplish its purpose. There's no man nor group of men that will ever be able to stop God. Does God have the power to save me? You see, just like with his knowledge, his understanding, we think about how infinite it is, but then when you draw it down and you focus it on our salvation and Godness, what about God's power to save me? Because, see, here's the problem. I talk to different people. And they'll say, but you've got to understand, I've done some bad things in my life. I've had some bad thoughts. How can God save, to use the words of the song, a wretch like me? In 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 36, But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with a great power and outstretched arm, Him you shall fear, Him you shall worship, and to Him you shall offer sacrifice. Folks, here's what's, what you've got to think about. Here's the children of Israel. They're in bondage. They're slaves. They're under the mighty hand of Pharaoh who has all the armaments, all the power, all the military strategy. And here's this group of people. And God with a mighty hand leads them 
out of that bondage and leads the Egyptians into their death. That's the God you're dealing with. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul will make reference to a man who had been a scoundrel. One who had been, to use his term, the chiefest of sinners. And he said, for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Is God able to save you? Was he able to save Paul? In Hebrews 7 and verse 25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, you've got something. You've got someone standing right next to the throne of God pleading for you with all of your faults. And God can make his power work. And you, you can be a tool. You can be an instrument of God's power. I like the way Paul put it in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now let's talk about the love of God. If you think about God is awesome in wisdom, in power, he's also awesome in love. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 and verse 16. Of course, it's the whole chapter, but I, I have to choose verses that I believe convey the idea that we're trying to understand. John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us that God had sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved Him or loved God, but that He loved us and has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in God, uh, love abides in God and God in him. Twice, God is love. That is his nature. But the greatest manifestation of God's love was in the giving, as John said, his only begotten 
Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me just focus a couple more passages from John here. 1 John 3 and verse 1. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Look how much God has loved us. How much has been bestowed or placed upon us. You all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And someone says, well, but that's the nature of God. God loves. And the grandeur of God's love is, is that it was expressed in Jesus Christ. But there's another dimension to this. You know, it's very easy for me to love you folks. You've been good to me. It's easy to love people who are good to you, that are nice to you, speak pleasant to you. But I tell you what, the one that's hard to love is the one who curses you out on the phone. It's the one who treats you ugly and does bad things to you. I want you to listen carefully to Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. For when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good one would someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know who all Jesus died for? Those people who spit on him and struck him with their palms of their hands. He died for those Roman soldiers who drove those nails in his hands. He died for those who stood at the foot of his cross mocking him. And Jesus died for us too. Not when we were really good folks, deserving of his love, but when we were doing the bad things. Now, folks, that's real love. That's infinite love. The epitome of love. God loves the undeserving, the unlovable, and that is remarkable and awesome to ponder. Our God is an awesome God, filled with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Now, in the singing of the songs that we have sung, we've offered some praise to God. And I, for just a moment, don't get your songbooks yet. Just because it says conclusion on the screen doesn't mean it's done yet. There's some very important passages I want you to listen to. Listen to carefully. Psalms chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 and 11. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. 
I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. Psalms 22, verses 22 and 23. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all you offspring of Israel. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And then Psalm 145, verses 2 through 4. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. I had to choose just a few. There are literally hundreds of passages in the book of Psalms which talk about the deserving nature of God to be praised. When we sing, we ought to sing with vigor. We ought to sing with joy. We ought to sing with enthusiasm. From a grateful and a humble heart comes obedience. You see, our God's an awesome God because He loved you enough to die for you on the, send Jesus to die for you on the cross. Jesus loved you enough to give His life. We're talking about the God of the universe. The greatest praise that you could offer is to come forward and say, I'm not a Christian, but I want to become one because... I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Bible calls that the good confession. We will assist you in being baptized for the remission of your sins as those who want to obey the gospel have been instructed to do. Acts 2 verse 38, Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. If you are a Christian, and your life has not reflected a devotion and an appreciation to the God of heaven, you need to repent. And we encourage you this morning to respond to the invitation. Would you come while together we stand and sing?